My name is Travis Lowe. I am the teaching pastor on staff here at Baylife. So that means that in addition to preaching on Sunday mornings, roughly once a month, I also manage our resources page. I don't know if you knew this, but if you go to baylife.org slash resources, we have a podcast that my wife and I host where we interview theologians. We've got a blog where we tackle cultural topics. And so I manage that. I teach our foundations classes. And as I said, I get to be with you all a little bit on Sunday mornings as well. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord's of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for those who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves in the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In the Bible that you hold in your hands or maybe have downloaded on your phone or access via Bible Gateway, these are the final words of your Old Testament. This is the last thing that God says to the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi before they enter 400 years of divine silence. This is the last promise that they receive before God ceases to speak. That there is a day coming in which I am going to act. That there is a day coming in which I will deal with the wickedness among you. There is a day coming that will burn like fire. But it's not this day. It's coming, and here's the signs that you can look for to know that it draws near. You'll see someone like Elijah preparing the way before I appear. But it's not this day. And with that, Israel enters into 400 years more of waiting. Waiting on God to act, waiting on God to move, waiting on God to set things right. We as a church are walking through this season of Advent. And Advent is a season that's commonly misunderstood. That's due to the fact that places like Starbucks and Target sell Advent calendars that are essentially just diet Christmas calendars. When Mark and I were talking several months ago and he said, I think we're going to do Advent this year, I said, do you mean Advent in the way that Starbucks means Advent? Or do you mean Advent in the way that Christians around the world mean Advent? And he said, I want to do the not Starbucks option. <laughs> Advent for Christians, the worldwide, regardless of denomination, creed, or background, is this season of four weeks of preparation. The season of four weeks in which we remember the waiting that Israel stepped into as they longed for the Messiah. It's this mysterious season. It's mysterious in the sense that it's not just about looking back, but looking through the lens of the past towards the future. It is this overlap of the ages. It's this moment in which we look back and say, God sometimes forces his people to wait, and yet the waiting isn't arbitrary. He's doing something. And then we say, just like Israel waited at the end of Malachi for 400 years, we find ourselves waiting now for 2,000 years for the return of Christ. This is why the Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but Advent? 
because we are awaiting this second advent. We're waiting on Jesus to return. We're waiting on God to act. We're waiting on him to trample down the wicked, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. I don't know if you've recognized this, though. Waiting is not an easy task. Like, have you ever sat in the waiting room of a hospital? Whether you're waiting on good or bad news, whether it's a checkup or a diagnosis, There are magazines sort of laid out everywhere, but I don't think anybody reads them and actually comprehends what they're looking at. We don't know what to do as we wait. So what do we do as we await the return of Jesus? How do we act as we wait on Christ to return? How do we as the church prepare ourselves for the new advent, the the second coming? Now I I just want to confess to you That maybe you hear second coming and you're already accessing all of your end times charts and maps on your phone. And you're getting really excited because you think that I'm about to talk about the timing of the rapture and the identity of the Antichrist and all sorts of things. I'm going to tell you that that's not what we're spending our time talking about this morning. I was sufficiently terrified by the Left Behind series. (laughs) No, here's what I want to invite you to do. Is, is not to focus on the areas which Christians divide over about the, the day and the hour and the timing. Here's what I want to invite you to do is to settle in and anticipate the one thing that all Christians of all backgrounds agree on. Jesus is coming back. That's what everyone agrees on. So what do we do in the meantime? There's been a lot of answers to that question throughout the years. There's been a lot of bad answers to that question. I wonder if you've ever heard of an event in American history called the Great Disappointment. It is, it's disappointing. The name kind of gives it away. In 1844, a Southern Baptist preacher, he's unfortunately in our family tree, convinced a whole host of people that he had calculated the day of Jesus' return. Which, side note, if you want to prevent Jesus from coming back, pick a day. And you have guaranteed that that is not the day of the Lord's return. He calculated that on October 22nd, 1844, Jesus was coming back. And he convinced hundreds of people that this was the case. So convinced were his followers that they sold everything they had. And they walked out of town. And they climbed up on the hills. Some of them dressed in white robes. And they waited. And they waited all day and into the evening, and then they realized that maybe he was wrong, and they were greatly disappointed, hence the name of the event. Now that underscores something that that I think we can all agree on. That is not what we should do in the meantime. We we should not sell everything we have and stand on the hills waiting. The waiting that God calls, calls us to is not this passive waiting, but it is an active waiting as we await the new advent, the return of Jesus. But what we do do is really important. And so here's what I want to invite you to do, is to answer this question, what do we do as we await Jesus' return? By looking back to a a prominent figure in the Advent story, John the Baptist. So if you have your Bibles, do me a favor, turn in them to the gospel according to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And let me read our scripture for us, and would you hear the word of the Lord? It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Mark begins his gospel by quoting Isaiah. He says, this is what Isaiah wrote. Now, this is a common sort of citation method in Mark's day, because if you look at the little footnotes in your Bible, he's not just quoting Isaiah. He is. He's quoting that passage that Shane and his family read for us during worship, but he's also quoting Malachi. He's also quoting portions of the book of Exodus. This was just kind of an understood thing. When you quote a bunch of prophets, you only need to name the most important one. And so he quotes all of these passages in the Old Testament and says, this is what the prophets said. This is what we've been waiting on, this voice in the wilderness, preparing the way of God, preparing the way for this advent, this coming of God. And no sooner do you ask the question, well, Who's the voice? Then he answers, John appeared, John the Baptist. Now, maybe if you've grown up in church, you have a a softened version of John the Baptist in your mind. Because you read things like John wore a garment made out of camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey, and you think, well, that was a long time ago, and people probably did that, right? That was maybe at least a little bit more common than it is in our day and age. Let me just tell you, it wasn't. It was not normal nor was it considered a common sight to see. John was weird even in John's day. Like eating locusts and wild honey, not exactly like a a common snack. It was not the Lay's potato chips of First Temple Judaism. What John wears was not the fashion of his day. He's bizarre. He's strange. He's somebody that made people uncomfortable. And he's, he's fiery. There's this this burning intensity to John. Like, I imagine if John came into our church, we would all be turning and looking at him, and he would be sitting in the back heavily critiquing my sermon very loudly. So contrary to what you've seen on, like, felt boards or Precious Moments dolls, John is not tame. John is an odd figure. figure. He's He's a fiery prophet who appears at the end of the age to usher in a new era of time. And he has this profound impact on Jewish society. He's mentioned in writings outside of the Bible. That's how influential he was. He radically shifts the course of Jewish society. But notice where he does it from. John's entire ministry is rooted in the wilderness. Like John is not on the talk shows of his day. John is not in the middle of city center. John has not ascended the ranks of political power All of John's impact, all of his influence, all of his renown, it all comes from the desert, outside of the culture, outside of Jewish society. John reaches Jewish society. He prepares the way for the coming of Christ, not by being like the culture, but by being unique and distinct, radically so. I wonder how different that is from the way that many Christians operate today. Like for many of us, we think that the the best way that the church will reach the world is by looking as much like it as we possibly can without sinning. 
Like, I, I grew up in the era of youth groups doing sermon series on the Matrix. That doesn't hold up well. Like, half of the people I talk to now have never even seen that movie. And it's cheesy when we look back on it. We're so convinced that the best way to reach the world is basically by wrapping the world up in a Jesus bow and selling it back to itself. That is not what John does. John is radically different. One pastor says it like this. He reached Jewish society by removing himself from it. Listen, if we want to prepare the way for the coming of the king, the way to do that is to live as kingdom people now. And that is distinct from the culture of the world. That is radically distinct from the society in which God has placed us. So let me, let me just throw this out there. As, as we await the return of Christ, the best thing we can do is stop wringing our hands and worrying about whether or not we're weird. The best thing we can do is stop worrying about whether the things that we do as Christians seem bizarre or awkward. The best thing we can do is stop apologizing for being distinctively Christian. That means embracing everything that makes Christianity unique. Weird things like not sleeping in on Sunday morning and gathering physically in a place with a bunch of people that you may or may not know. Weird things like sharing a table, bread and the cup, which we all know will not tide us over until lunch. Weird things like submerging people in the water when they come to follow Jesus as if they're being cleansed of their sins and born again. The best thing we can do as we prepare the way of the Lord is to live in the way of the Lord which is distinct and unique. And can I tell you the, the good news? That other stuff doesn't work anyways. Not for very long. It just doesn't. Can I tell you the good news? All of my friends, Christian atheist, agnostic, they're tired of Christians trying so desperately to be cool. It doesn't work. It was never meant to work. We're not meant to stand in city center and capitulate to culture, but to be voices in the wilderness, to embody the kingdom of God in a way that is visibly different. As we prepare the way for the king, that's what John does. John cries out in the wilderness. But what does John say? We're told in verse four that John was baptizing in the wilderness and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message is clear, repent. After me comes one who is greater than me, whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. In the Isaiah passage, the one who comes in the power of Elijah prepares the way for God himself. John's message is repent because God is coming and you are not ready. And that message falls to us as the church, as, as we prepare the way for the return of Jesus, the, the new advent of Christ, this call to repentance. But here's what I think the problem can be, is that we have in some ways embraced a, a therapeutic understanding of the gospel and unintentionally, when, when we actually have the opportunity to speak, to, to issue that call, we don't do it. Not because we're not trying to, but because we don't know how. So, so let me explain. We just had a team come back from Glasgow, Scotland. We have a church plant partner over there in a, a small community called Berlinark. And we work with a ministry there called 20 Schemes. And every single person who goes on our 20 Schemes trips I sit down with and I do an interview for before we let people onto the trip. And I always ask the same question. 
what is the gospel? Explain to me the gospel. Now, that's not a trick question. A lot of people think it is. And people try to, like, impress me with, like, a, a fancy, fancy answer. It, it's not a trick question. It, it's a genuine question. And here's why. The, the, the ministry that we partner with has been a thing for 10, 10 years or so. And they've constantly had American missionaries coming over for years and years and years. And here's what they've found. Most American missionaries can't explain the message that they're on a mission to promote. They can't explain it. And so when they, when they have a conversation with a, a post-Christian, secular Scottish person, and that person says, so tell me, tell me what, what is Christianity about? Tell me, tell me how Christianity has affected you. The answer is normally something to the effect of, well, I was going through a rough time in my life, things were difficult, and then one day my friend invited me to church, or I grew up in church and decided to come back to church, and at first I thought it was dumb, but eventually things got better. So, want to join? Now, here's the thing. I, I, I don't mean to be, I, I'm, I'm not being dismissive. Really and truly, it, it's an encouraging thing to know that, that the church is a place where broken people can find healing. It's an, it's an encouraging thing to know that the church is a place where people who are struggling can be comforted and experience the comfort of God. But that is not the gospel. That is emphatically not the gospel. It has nothing to do with sin. It says nothing about repentance. The cross has no place in that story. There is no need for an empty tomb. John the Baptist does not prepare the way for the Lord by telling disappointed people to have better lives by joining a social club. He prepares the way for the Lord by saying, repent. Turn from how you live and walk in newness of life. That's the task that falls to us as Christians, but I just want to be really clear. If that excites you, you don't understand how weighty that message is. Like if the idea of telling people to repent is something that gets you really excited, you have not yet grasped the weight of your sin or the sins of people around you. The call to repentance is not something that we issue with pride in our voice but with tears in our eyes and and if we want to do this if we if we want to be an advent people preparing the way for the lord as john prepared the way we also have to be a community that enables people to walk in repentance the the ministry we partner with in scotland i think i mentioned this before they, they work in some of the most deprived communities in the united kingdom people battling with drug addiction, people involved in gang violence, people in systematic cycles of poverty, people struggling with mental illness and joblessness and all these things, this, this, this mess of things that, that keeps them down. And into all this darkness, they issue the call to repentance, but here's what they recognize, and here's what we need to recognize if we're gonna do this. They recognize that if they tell Johnny, who's in a gang and addicted to drugs, to repent of his sins, and if he were to actually do it, he will lose all of his friends. He will lose the one thing he goes to to comfort him when life gets difficult. And he will probably also lose his primary source of income. It is not enough to just say repent if we will not be a community of people that makes repentance possible long term. 
We have to be a community that can enable people to sustainably repent. So when we say to single people, you need to walk in celibacy until you are married, are we a place where single people can come and not experience the crushing loneliness that so often causes them to break that vow? Are we a community of people when we call, call people to repent of, of things with addiction? Are we a place that will walk alongside them and carry them and enable them to walk in the newness of life that the Spirit grants them? The call to repentance can only come from the wilderness where we are distinctively Christian, where we distinctively embody the kingdom of God so that people can actually walk in newness of life. Probably the most important thing that Mark tells us about John is this, that when he preached in verse 7, he said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And by all accounts, historically and within the Gospels, John the Baptist has a dynamic ministry. He makes waves. People follow John. John amasses a significant number of followers. Actually, in John's Gospel, it seems as though they're just following him around because there's this scene where John the Baptist is passing by and Jesus passes by. And he points to him and says, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who I've been telling you about. But that's the point. John recognizes that his whole ministry is not about building his whole ministry. His ministry is about preparing the way for the one to come. He is more than ready to release his followers to follow Jesus because that was his job in the first place. And he never, ever loses sight of the fact that he is not the point. The point is Jesus. The point is the one coming after him. The point is the one whose sandals he is unworthy to untie. Listen, it is so, so easy in the church, as the church, to become obsessed with building our kingdoms rather than preparing the way for the king to become obsessed with making sure that there are more people in the pews this week than last week, to become obsessed with making sure that there are more baptisms this year than last year, to become obsessed with having the nicest technology and the fanciest website and the most followers on social media and on and on and on it goes. And listen, none of those things are bad. None of them are bad and in their proper place they're good. But none of them are the point. The point is to prepare the way for Jesus. We are not kings in castles, church. We are voices in the wilderness, preparing the way for the king, saying, make straight paths for him. After us comes one who is greater. We, like Israel, at the end of Malachi, find ourselves waiting. But it's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. We have work to do as we await the new advent of our king. I started our time together with the words of Malachi, the last promise that God made to Israel as they waited for Jesus. 
And maybe it's fitting as we kind of wrap up our time together for you to hear the last thing that Jesus says to the church before the voice of God goes silent in Scripture. These are the words of Jesus which he spoke to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you that these things, about these things for the churches, I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. John goes on, he says, he that testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. These are the words that ring in the ear of the church now as we await the new advent of our king. The second coming, the new heavens and the new earth. I grew up until my early teens in the Episcopal Church, which is very different from Bay Life. And growing up, I hated it. Absolutely hated it. Because I had to wear a button-down shirt rebelling this morning and because I didn't understand what was going on there were all of these pre-written prayers and the minister would say something and then everybody would respond and there were candles gosh if you think what we're doing for Advent is intense you have no idea and as I've grown up and looked back on it I've realized there's a lot of problems there but there's some good too there was one prayer that we would say almost every week Right towards the end of our service, the minister would say, we proclaim the mystery of faith. And then the congregation would say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And very often the service would end like that. And, and, and the minister would say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. The idea being this, at the end of our time together, as we walk out of these doors and into the world, we walk out of these doors with the promise of Christ's return ringing in our ears. And we live in light of that, awaiting that new advent, knowing that we have work to do in the meantime. So Baylife, I want to invite you to step into that tradition with me and repeat the words, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So would you with me proclaim the mystery of faith? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Bay life with that ringing in your ears, go out into the world to your jobs, your homes, your classrooms, your friendships, and be a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for him. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that we can trust that Christ will come again because in this season we look back and we see the answer to all of your promises and the prophets. Jesus, the one in whom all of your promises find their yes. God, strengthen us as the church. Teach us to live differently, to be a voice crying out from the wilderness to be a place where people can repent and walk in newness of life and to never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming again to make all things new. In this Advent season, that is the Advent that we wait for. 
Help us wait well, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? are true for us as they were true for Israel. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. And in the meantime, go in peace to love and serve the Lord as you wait on the day of Christ's return. We'll see you next week.